Hello, and welcome to Risk Chats with A-Firm. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. We're back from the holiday season, and we're happy to have with us today Jennifer Hills from King County over in Washington State. And she shares with us today some very innovative things they're doing in enterprise risk management. And I think it's very interesting for us federal folks to hear from a state and local perspective. So sit back and enjoy, and welcome Jennifer to the podcast. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm very happy today to have Jennifer Hills joining us from King County. Hello, Jennifer. Hello, Paul. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us all the way from Washington. So uh, let's start off, uh, if you don't mind, just giving our audience, uh, just kind of introduce yourself and and the role that you uh, play over at King County. Well, that's great. Well, uh, won't you give us a little bit of the history of uh, King County? So, you know, a firm, obviously, in our name, you know, we, we're the federal community of risk management, and uh, you're with a uh, with a county. So, I'd love to hear, you know, um, a little bit of the history of your ERM program and why King County decided to start one. Well, unfortunately, as is often the case in the risk management profession, significant loss prompts change, and that is what precipitated our enterprise risk management program. So in 2010 and 2011, we had three significant losses that totaled over $26 million in payments. We had an operating room nurse who was on her way to work riding her motor scooter. At the same time, a King County service supervisor was driving a large van. He was on his way to assist a county bus that was disabled and blocking traffic. He stopped at an intersection and then proceeded out into the roadway but didn't see her on her Vespa, struck her, and she had significant and permanent injuries. And that same year, we had a young middle school student who was swimming and rafting on the Cedar River, one of the rivers in King County. It was the first day of summer vacation, and she became trapped underwater and was submerged for several minutes, and she survived but had significant brain injury and the county had recently completed a riverbank stabilization project, and it's possible the young swimmer may have become trapped in the large woody debris and the rocks that the county used to support the riverbank. And then the third large loss had to do with our police department. Our sheriff's deputies were called to a bar fight, and a suspect had significantly injured two patrons with a broken bottle. So when our deputies arrived at the scene, an eyewitness identified the suspect. So they called out to him and wanted to talk to him. He ran, so they initiated a foot chase. And when they caught up to him, they used a destabilization technique to get him onto the ground so they could make their arrest. And he hit his head on the concrete and suffered significant head injury. And as it turns out, it was a case of mistaken identity, and he was not the person involved in the bar fight. So these were just unprecedented losses for King County with large settlement payments, and they resulted in a significantly higher self-insured retention, or essentially the deductible or the amount of loss King County pays before insurance responds to the loss. 
And so our self-insured retention went from $3.5 million per loss to $7.5 million per loss as a result of these three significant losses. And then at the same time, our council auditor decided to audit the Office of Risk Management, do a, an annual performance audit. And to our auditor's credit, they researched enterprise risk management and made a recommendation that our office was using more of a traditional strategy for managing operational risks, and we really needed to focus on broader categories of risk, like strategic risk and reputational risk, and take a more comprehensive countywide approach to risk management. So what started as a really unfortunate situation um, kind of blossomed into our ERM program, and we had immediate support from both our our elected executive and our elected county council. And so we were able to get a a staff person added to our budget, our ERM program manager, who has successfully implemented and manages our program. Wow, yeah, so you all definitely started from a, a point where you know, some unexpected things happened. You really didn't have a program or maybe a fully developed program in place. And it really, you know, kind of opened your eyes that this is something you needed to, to put some focus on. Um, so that's basically how you all started. Um, how would you say things have evolved from how you started the program to where you are today? Our program started with a couple of goals. We wanted to start to identify and assess high-priority risks and improve the controls that we had um, through some documented action plans. And we wanted to increase the level of risk awareness and risk ownership at all levels of the county to start to support strategic planning and decision-making with an ERM approach. I would say prior to implementing enterprise risk management, the risk management office was often seen as the risk owner, and we wanted to shift that focus to the business units. We want to consult with them, advise them, but they are truly the risk owner and we wanted them to be making risk-aware decisions. And we also wanted the ERM program to support our executive's vision. It was really important to us to align the ERM program to his vision. And the county is really guided by four priority areas. We have a commitment to equity and social justice. We are striving to be a best-run government through customer-focused continuous improvement. We are improving our regional mobility, trying to deliver safe, reliable transportation networks. And then we're confronting the impacts of climate change. So we're using those four priority areas to kind of as a lens through which we look at the risk facing the county as a whole. was to create our enterprise risk register and this was started as our roadmap for ERM. We were really used to managing risks within silos in the county but we didn't have a list of the priority risks facing King County as a whole. So we were able to send an all-user email which takes some doing because you know not a lot of us send emails to all 15,000 employees but they let us do that at the beginning of our ERM program And we asked some open-ended questions of all county staff, such as, what do you spend the most time managing? Uh, What risk is is the most important to you? What do you wish you had more time or money or resources to manage? 
What's the main reason you are unable to devote time or money or resources to managing risks? And then we ask them to name their three most important risk issues facing the county. And we were pretty surprised at what we got back. And as I mentioned, we were used to, to kind of managing operational risks, but we were really trying to expand it to other types of risk. And the number one risk identified by county staff was inadequate succession planning. And we have a very high percentage of employees who are eligible to retire right now. It's about 52%. So when we look out five years, that that high percentage really becomes a tidal wave, the so-called silver tsunami. You know, it's a huge group of people who are going to retire and take their institutional knowledge with them. But we decided to look at this risk as also an opportunity. It's an opportunity to redefine who we are, an opportunity to hire with more diversity so we can reflect the community we serve. And it places this risk and opportunity on the risk profile so it becomes a priority risk on par with other more traditional operational risks. We also formed a risk management, uh, enterprise-wide kind of risk management committee. We call it the ERM work group, and they convene quarterly and our, the group is made up of a representative from every large department. And they get together to validate our risk register, make sure we are focused as a county on the most important risks. And then they look at new losses, follow up on prior losses, talk about emerging risk trends. They track risk reviews and making sure we're making progress towards our ERM roadmap. Wow. So. Now, uh, kind of brings up another question. You know, you're speaking to different levels, staff, management, of course. Um, and when you were kind of putting those risk registers together, the first ones, was there anything that jumped out of you that kind of surprised you to say, you know, management seems to think these are the risks, but, you know, when you talk to the full spectrum across the, the county, these are really these are the risks that really they should be thinking about. good um yeah because I, mean, I would assume if you're just kind of focusing on management they're going to give you this you know budgets and this and that but when you go across the board you see folks in operations out there you know these are the programs these are things that could impact so you know get a much bigger perspective um and speaking of which um you know i think you, you talked about you started off it was really a risk register you know some 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 unfortunate events that had transpired 
Um, but it sounds like you've started to think about pushing things towards not just risk mitigation, but what are some value generating activities that your program could provide? Could you speak to that? Yes. We, so we implemented risk man- or enterprise risk management. We moved from looking at risk as a negative, as something to mitigate, as only having a downside. And ERM taught us that risks have upside as well. We need to look at opportunity. And it really paved the way for a shift in our thinking about risk. And at the same time, King County became a member of CAMI, which is the Consortium for Advanced Management International. And CAMI has a risk and value group looking at risk in a whole new way. And they have a bell-shaped curve. And I wish I had the graphic in front of us to talk about, but it has risk on the x-axis and value on the y-axis. And it's a simple bell curve. And the concept is an organization can take on measured risk, thoughtful risk, and actually increase value for the organization. Because I think traditionally, the relationship between risk and value would have been depicted as just a negative downward slope. The more risk you take on, value declines. At least, especially in government, we're very risk averse, and we're not used to taking on risk for the value that you can create. But in the county, we've really been changing the conversation to be not just the identification of risk and the mitigation of risk, but taking balanced risk and purposely engaging risk if it can increase value. Yeah. So, I mean, do you have any examples of, you know, where you guys have actually trying to move from just a negative risk aspects to actually taking taking advantage of certain uh, opportunities? We do. One example comes from our public health department, and for decades, public health has offered internships to college students from various medical fields. Um, These college students are interested in an internship, a medical internship, and many of them would come to King County Public Health, and our contract required the educational institution to indemnify King County for any negligent acts that the student interns may cause. And so four-year universities would agree to this indemnification language, but two-year community colleges were not able to agree to that language. So for years, we were only accepting students from four-year universities into our public health medical internships. Well, then we started realigning our risk management focus with the executive's priorities. And I mentioned we have an equity and social justice uh, priority. So we looked at the demographics of students who attend four-year universities and students in two-year programs through this equity lens, and we are committed to creating opportunities where everyone has equitable access, and we decided we needed to reevaluate our intern program. So we got some folks together in the county, our legal advisors, our public health managers, risk management, and we looked at this risk value curve and we felt like we were in the inefficient phase. We were on the left of the graph. Risk, our risk was low because we were transferring our risk to the university, but value was low as well. We were eliminating all these students from two-year colleges. So we took a look at past losses and areas where um, students in our intern program had um, 
you know, committed some negligent act that might have caused a loss. And we determined maybe with some additional training on uh, HIPAA and privacy concerns, we could take on that risk. And so we would allow students from two-year colleges to participate in our intern program without signing the contract that provided these indemnity protections. And we would take that balanced risk and increase value for the educational institutions, for the students who might want a career in public health, and for King County as well. That's great. Yeah, no, because I think a lot of folks, as you said, government agencies, you know, tend to be very risk averse. I mean, it makes sense. It's public funds. You don't want to, uh, you know, just willy nilly play with that. But uh, at the same time, you want to provide good programs for, for the community. So you have to take some risks. And it sounds like some of the ones you've taken have, have worked out pretty well. So let me uh, have another example. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, I have another example, which is brand new. And it's called zero youth detention. So our King County executive has set a goal of zero youth detention, which in his words is unique and audacious and completely consistent with our values as a community. And we're not sure this will be successful, but we're gonna take some risk and hope it will lead to no young person having to be detained. So this goal requires King County, every time a youth is charged with a serious crime, to ask, how could we have prevented this? How did the system let the child down? What can we do to help them atone for what they've done and redeem redeem themselves so they can get back on track? And, you know, we're asking what has happened in the child's life in the 14 or 16 years that preceded them interacting with the criminal justice system. And then we're going to make investments upstream to make sure that every, every child has the best chance at success. So this goal means that youth detention will move from the Department of Adult and Juvenile Tension, Detention and into the Department of Public Health. So this allows us to ask what outcomes do we want for young people community-wide, what will keep us from meeting those outcomes, and then take a scientific approach rather than a criminal justice approach. And our public health department is leading through this trauma-informed lens, which means that the strategies and actions to get to zero youth detention will respond to the impacts of trauma and adversity in the lives of youth involved in the juvenile or legal justice system. So it's a complete shift in thinking about youth who commit crime and trying to prevent, you know, intervene earlier in their life and prevent this life of crime and um, ensure that they can have a productive, successful life and give back to the community. We are the only government that we are aware of who is managing youth detention out of public health. And we're just embarking on this goal, and we certainly hope we can reach it. Yeah, and that's extremely interesting. I mean, as, as everybody knows, I mean, you know, across the country, we have issues with crime and, and the way things are dealt with. And it'd be very interesting to see how, how you all do with that. And, uh, you know, to think that looking at across the board of at how, how programs are run or, you know, taking risks in, in certain cases to see if you can get different results, because if we just do the same thing over and over, we don't really get any different results. So I'm really interested to see that you guys are doing that. I can't, I'd be very interested to see how, how it comes how it comes out. I'll keep you posted. All right. 
Um, well, I have another question for you. Uh, we had talked before, and there something I thought was interesting or unique that you said that you all have a loss control fund, and I was curious, uh, kind of explain what that is and how that ties into risk management. Oh, sure. So our approach to risk treatment is fairly traditional, even within an ERM framework, and we tend to identify risk treatment methods, analyze their impacts, select the method that we believe will be most successful, implement the risk treatment, and then monitor the loss activity and make adjustments as needed. That's a very typical risk treatment approach. However, in King County, we're able to take that risk treatment a step further with our loss control fund that you mentioned. The fund was established in 1999 by our county council. They were ahead of their time in putting a fund together so that risk management could dedicate some resources to assisting departments with loss prevention. The fund in 99 started at 35000 per year, and it's now a million per year. It's funded in our budget by our county council. So the loss control fund looks at addressing emerging unanticipated risks. It's not really meant for risks that could have been budgeted for, but you know, new exposures um, that wouldn't have been known. And so we have some really fun examples of investments we've made recently. We recently funded a technology investment that won a digital transformation award. So our wastewater treatment division partnered with Microsoft and a local tech startup called Tactile to launch a mixed reality device that trains our wastewater treatment operators and it, they use this virtual reality device to check inspection points and mark tasks as completed. So there's a virtual model of the wastewater treatment plant that is connected to a feed of live data. And then the operators wear these mixed reality goggles and run through their tasks and their inspection checklist, and they get training using this virtual and augmented reality headset. It's fascinating. It's proving quite successful and just won an award. So we were able to fund that early on to make this technology available and our department took it from there and have, you know, done wonders. Another really exciting investment for us was the RADAR program. And RADAR stands for Response, Awareness, De-Escalation, and Referral. And this was a partnership with the King County Sheriff's Office. And we were able to provide loss control funding so they could start the program. And their program became a success. And so they applied for more grant funding through the U.S. Department of Justice Smart Policing Initiative, which they received. And they are also receiving research assistance from George Mason University. So RADAR is an effort to address the rights and needs of individuals with behavioral health issues or developmental disabilities and to decrease the use of force incidents between police and individuals who may have developmental disabilities or behavioral health issues. So they use a community policing sort of framework and strategy and they build relationships between the police and the populations they serve before the crisis. So it's a completely voluntary program. It's a resource for families who have a loved one who may have some behavioral health issues or developmental disabilities, and they may be concerned about 
a possible police encounter. So they collaborate ahead of time with our police officers, with mental health professionals and first responders, and they talk about maybe de-escalation techniques or um, words that they can use that might um, kind of solve a situation and then also trigger words or actions to avoid that might escalate the situation. But the police and family become known to one another ahead of time and they have a lot more information than if they have to respond to a crisis situation. And we're hoping it's leading to better outcomes and reducing the likelihood of first responders having to use force. Wow, yeah, no, that's, that's very interesting. I love, I love how you guys have a, a separate fund set aside for kind of innovative ideas and uh, you know things that could address bigger issues like that. So no, that's, that's a great example for, for others out there. Well, you know what? Let me, uh, let's, uh, I have one more question for you as we kind of, uh, come to a close here. Um, a little impromptu, but you know, um, I was just curious, you know, what, what advice would you give a, a risk program manager or CRO out there that wants to kind of move in a, in a direction of more risk taking or, um, you know, sort of some of these innovative approaches that you all have, have taken, not necessarily just being risk averse on every point, but, you know, turning things around a little bit to the more of an opportunity. What would you recommend? Well, what we have found is we're fortunate in that we have an elected leader who is constantly telling King County he wants us to take more risk. And county decision makers and leaders are trying to rise to that challenge, but they don't know how much risk to take and what kind of risk to take. And so what we have found really helpful just recently is the development of risk appetite statements. And we are working with our executive's office to develop some risk appetite statements along several key risk categories, such as strategy, finance, reputation, equity, workforce, safety. And we actually look to USAID. Um, They have an excellent example of of risk appetite framework and statements on their website, but we're trying to get our executive's office to define how much risk they're comfortable taking in those in those key risk categories, and then we're developing specific risk appetite statements that will cascade down throughout the organization. And so then when we're evaluating a new program or initiative and we're looking at our risk value curve and we're saying, where are we now? We're pretty risk averse. Where do we want to be? We want to be more risk optimized. And how much, what what permission do we have to take risk? How much risk can we take? What is the executive set as our guardrail? And those frameworks can really help get you there. You know, once you've taken into account your organization's capacity for risk and tolerance for risk, and you have some top-down risk appetite statements, then you have something to work with and you can start moving from a risk-averse government to one that takes balanced risks. Well, that's great advice. No, I, and I saw that AID uh, risk appetite out there on the web, too. I'm trying to get a hold of them and get them on the podcast, too. I'd love to talk to them. <laughs> so, well, Jennifer, thanks again for uh, for joining us uh, and really appreciate it. And I was very happy to get some uh, county, state, and local kind of uh, perspective on this and a lot of the, the, the risks uh you guys are taking for the good, for the better. So uh, thanks again for joining us. I appreciate it very much. Thank you very much, Paul. It's my pleasure. Well, that's our show. Thanks again for tuning in. Looking forward to a 
great 2019 full of podcasts and enterprise risk management innovations. Check us out on our website, afirm.org. You can find all our podcasts and give us some feedback. Let us know who you'd like to hear on the show. And until next time, this is Paul Marshall signing off for Risk Chats with Afirm. Firm.